0: You're listening to Red Flag Radio. My name's Ros Ward. We record this show on Indigenous land that was stolen, never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We have um, a Patreon account, as you know, that we ask for financial support. If you're able to um, donate anything at all, uh, a couple of bucks a month, um, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. And obviously uh, you're listening to this hopefully in the knowledge that this is a revolutionary socialist podcast. And please again, uh, check out all our episodes. Um, We've got quite a back catalog coming on now. So today's uh, special edition of the podcast is with Tom Bramble, and we're excited to have Tom with us because Tom and Mick Armstrong, uh, two of the founder members of Socialist Alternative, have just published a new book, which um, has got some rave reviews so far from people who've read it internationally Because it brings together a whole series of really important events in the 20th century and it's called The Fight for Workers' Power, Revolution and Counter-Revolution in the 20th Century, published by Interventions. Uh, Tom has written about, um, studied and most importantly probably taken part in (laughs) the labour movement in Australia and internationally and he's a well-known Marxist author, um, written about the history of the trade union movement and the Labour Party and a bunch of Young comrades, I'm sure, would have um, kind of got their first taste of Marxism through the book that he published in 2015, Introducing Marxism, A Theory for Social Change. You can find all of those books at Red Flag Books, and you can also order this one um, that we're previewing today um, at Red Flag Books, and the link will be in the show notes. So, Tom, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Comrade.
0: Um, Let's start with your motivation, you you and Mick. Like, where did this idea come from for writing this book? What was your motivation?
1: Well, I think it's important to address the fact that in the eyes of tens of millions of people, young people in particular, capitalism these days is seriously discredited. You only have to look at the way the pandemic has illustrated the uh, failings of the system, the bosses putting profits above human lives, hoarding vaccines while 80% of the world's population is denied them, handing out billions of dollars to business while well, crumbs to the unemployed. On top of which there's the climate crisis, which sees the world hurtling towards climate breakdown. The trillions of dollars being spent on building up the arms industries while people starve and the world's politicians just seem to be incompetent and caring and end it just for themselves and their rich buddies. I think that's why socialism, uh, when you look at surveys done in places like Europe and the United States is more popular than ever amongst young people. But there's a bit of a confusion. What do we actually mean by socialism? This is where things get tricky. Is it a better welfare state? Is it public ownership of the railways? Is it a strong leader handing down reforms on a high? Is it China or Russia or Venezuela or Cuba or whatever? Part of the problem is that socialism has been so distorted by the experience of social democracy, that is the Labour parties, and Stalinism, that is the old communist parties in the past century, that there's an awful lot of misunderstanding about what we mean by socialism. So in this book, what we try to do is to make the case that socialism is about workers' power, not about nationalization of industry or strong leaders flying red flags or whatever. And we want to demonstrate in this book how it is that workers have fought for power time and again, even in the most ideous of circumstances. But as they do so, political struggles inevitably break out between those determined to patch up the system and those fighting for social and political transformation. So in this book, we want to make the case for revolutionary socialism, and the need in particular for revolutions to organize ahead of the outbreak of these struggles in order to fight for workers' power against all those forces that want to squash it and confine things to tinkering within the capitalist system. So this is a book at its heart, as it says at the title, Uh, the fight for workers' power, to establish the real traditions of socialism, that we want to convince all those millions of young people who are sick of capitalism, who have some vague conception of what socialism is, this is actually understand what real socialism is, how it can come about, how it can be won. Mm.
0: So then the next obvious question is, if socialism is workers' power,
1: then what is workers' power? Well, I think in some ways I've already started to address that, which is that socialism is the act of the working class. It's not something that's brought about into existence by a saviour from one high, descending to the masses from one high. The working class, as Marx and Engels said, must emancipate themselves. They must free themselves. It's also about the fact that class struggle is an international struggle. The workers have no nation, as the Communist Manifesto put it. Patriotism and nationalism affect the enemies of socialism. It's also about the working class needing their own political organisation. We can't rely on alliances with bourgeois reformers or parties like the Democrats or the Labour Party or whatever. We need our own parties, we need our own workers' parties dedicated to the fight for socialism. And we need to smash the capitalist state, The very important thing about what we mean by workers' power. Workers' power can't coexist with the capitalist parliamentary system. Workers need their own state, a state based on workers' councils, a truly democratic state where those who do the work rule. And finally, we say that workers' power is... Uh, about, in fact, the liberation of all the oppressed. Because one point that Marx and Engels made 150 years ago is they put it the working class is a universal class. The fight for workers' power is a fight to liberate the oppressed, every oppressed group in society. That's not only because the working class is the largest class and contains every oppressed group in its ranks, and workers can't possibly win their liberation unless they fight for all oppressed groups, but also because the source of class oppression, that is capitalism, is the source of every other form of oppression. So the victory of the working class and that of all oppressed groups are one and the same. That's what we mean by workers' power. Mm. Mm.
0: Which is, I mean, it's the contrast with those other things that claim to be socialism is pretty clear when you set it out like that. And I guess what the question and the other thing that you're trying to answer is, you know, how do you get there Um, and the lessons you can learn from all of the revolutionary moments from the 20th century. I mean, I've had a look through the book. I I admit I haven't read the whole thing. I've read the introduction and I've (laughs) uh, had a look at the contents. But uh, you talk about the 20th century, but it's actually between 1914 and 1956 really in the main events that you featured. What's important about this particular um, section of
1: time? That you've chosen? I think that compared to the period after the 50s, or after the 40s at least, the period from 1914 to 1956 is a period of tremendous social turmoil and political turmoil. Capitalism and the world order, are an almost constant state of, of flux. Uh, you start 1914 with the outbreak of World War One, the bloodiest conflagration the world has ever seen. Millions die. At the home front there's starvation, there's speed up uh, in the factories, Uh, There's people uh, crying out for bread uh, alongside enormous fortunes accumulated in the hands of the profiteers. This helps to throw up enormous resistance to war and hardship around the world, in Europe, in the Americas, in Australia, and also to generate a series of national liberation struggles, starting in Ireland, but also in China, India, Iraq, all over the world. The capitalist system by the end of the First World War was on edge, and the Russian Revolution demonstrated the alternative, 1917. The ruling class at the end of the First World War was incredibly nervous. The working class was on its feet and was fighting for liberation and an end to the system that brought them them war. In the 20s, there's a period of capitalist stabilisation. Before that gives way, in 1929, to the Great Depression. That, in turn, creates the conditions for the rise of fascism in Germany. And the destabilization of imperialism that is associated with the depression then creates the conditions for a new war in 1945, in 1939. Again, more destruction and the deaths of millions of people. But like the First World War, this war also throws up social revolts in country after country. These are now put down, uh, now, ironically and very sadly, with the help of parties that call themselves communists. After the Second World War, you see the world divided up into two big imperialist blocs. This is a new Cold War. The Russian army imposes Stalinism uh, in the East, that is a ser- a ser- essentially a series of police state dictatorships, a new Russian empire. But despite the fact these governments are run in the name of the workers, they do not actually serve the needs of workers at all, just a tiny minority of bureaucrats. And workers rise up against Stalinism in the East just as much as they've risen up against capitalism in the West. In fact, they're two v- different variants of capitalism. And so the book ends in 1956 with a brilliant Hungarian revolution against the uh, communist government in power in Budapest, there, by the name of communism, not communism reality, uh, which actually coincides with uh, the uh, a great anti colonial uh, struggle in 1956 when Britain, France, and Israel invade Egypt in order to try and take back the Suez Canal from the Egyptian leader, President Nasser. And so what you have there, both East and West, is, uh, if you like, examples of how the system, state capitalism, Stalinism in the East, imperialism, colonialism, standard capitalism in the West, actually uh, try to repress uh, fights for freedom uh, and how the workers and the popular masses uh, rise up uh, for their, their own demands. And so... That led many people to actually see the fact It wasn't a matter of choosing between Washington or Moscow as being the preferred side, whether not you you kind of went for Western capitalism or you went for so-called Eastern socialism, but actually down with both of them. And you had to fight for a a genuine socialist tradition, reaching back to the Communist Manifesto, reaching back to writings of uh, Marx and Engels, reaching back to the writings of people like Lenin uh, in the 1910s and early 1920s to actually restore and revive the real socialist tradition. So what, that's essentially what we're seeing here. 1914, you see the crisis of, I'll come on to this in a moment, the crisis of the Labour parties, which back their own governments. 1956, you see the crisis of the Communist parties as a repressive nature of these parties has revealed uh, when they send in tanks against the Hungarian people. And so what you're trying to—what we're trying to uh, convey in this book is the way in which people fight back uh, in, on all fronts.
0: Mm. And I guess what you've got in that period going through all those examples is enough evidence really to absolutely um, conclusively make the case that in um, in the case of uh, social democracy and labour parties and reformist politics that fails and conclusively that Stalinism is obviously not socialism and if you have a workers' revolution in a communist Country, it's not communist like that. Kind of proves that point in 1956, and mm. all of the different instances in between.
1: Our comrades the world.
0: So, if we start with 1914, and obviously this is there's a huge topic, so we can't talk about everything here. But uh, the break out of war in this way that you said becomes, you know, the biggest slaughter that's ever been seen in history. Was it really a kind of test for revolutionaries? Can you talk a bit about why this is so important as a place to start?
1: Yeah, because I think 1914 is tremendously important because 1914 sees the first great crisis of the dominant politics of workers movement In the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, masses of workers, millions of workers, places like Germany, France, Italy, Britain, Australia, wherever, uh, converged on or helped support the creation of uh, social democratic parties. In Australia, we call them the Labour Party, which said they stood for socialism, uh, whose project essentially was socialism through parliament uh, to win majority and then to form a government and to bring in socialism through parliament. But uh, and which talked about internationalism, which condemned capitalism for, uh, co- you know, for condemning uh, workers to war, and yet in 1914, when the first great imperialist war breaks out, all these governments. Uh, Without exception, and all these opposition parties, in fact, because most of them are in opposition, these Labour parties, except in Australia, where in fact they're in power, uh, all these uh, parties actually back the imperialist war. They throw their weight behind the generals, uh, the prime ministers, the presidents, the treasurers, the banks, the landlords to uh, cheer on uh, the war effort of their own national government. They utterly betray the uh, socialist tradition uh, of uh, workers of of all lands unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, as Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto. What it now sort of seemed was actually was that the Labour parties, uh, who were joined together in an organisation called the Second International, a kind of coalition of labour parties, who had passed constant council and res- conference resolutions condemning war uh, and talking about the international brotherhood and sisterhood of the working class, actually now all lined up behind their own recruiting sergeants uh, and dragooned the working class uh, to sign up for the army uh, and to fight for the generals of their own side and on the home front to encourage workers to sacrifice all existing conditions and wages for the war efforts, uh, to encourage, uh, you know, the uh, food shortages, you know, to overlook the food shortages, to divert uh, resources away from uh, housing and food towards military uses, cannons and uniforms and bullets and bayonets and the rest of it. Uh, And the Labour Party go along with this pretty much all the way throughout the whole war. So they utterly discredit in the eyes of uh, many millions of workers, in fact, uh, the idea of uh, social democracy. And that helps to create the conditions for the emergence of uh, revolutionary or the, I should say the return of revolutionary socialism as the real uh, socialist uh, uh, approach. Mm. I think that's important that it's not a break
0: at that point um, from the real rev- re- real. Marxist tradition that actually the break was the social democrats going along with um the war effort as you've described and I think I mean how hard was it and I guess how was it possible then for the socialists who didn't go along because I mean it's hard for us to kind of imagine that period and the immense pressure there was to go along with these nationalist war efforts and the condemnation every member of the ruling class and every, you know, newspaper and every bit of propaganda that was available um, at that time, like to stand up against that pressure. Uh, who who managed to do that and, and why were they able to do that?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, – your point there, Roz, is, is right, which is that there was tremendous pressure on the socialist parties, the very small minority of socialist parties actually that uh, – that actually stood up against this. So I said, I think, before every socialist party did, but of course there were one or two exceptions: uh, the Serbian party, uh, and the Russian party. Most importantly, the Russian Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, who initially were flabbergasted by what their brother and sister organisations had done. They believed that these Western European parties were, you know, the uh, you know could be relied upon to stand firm. Uh, And so the first instinct actually was shock and devastation. But they, in fact, held fast to their principles. Uh, And they said that, uh, to use uh, a phrase that Lenin used, he said the only demand should be what he said, the conversion of the present imperialist war into a civil war is the only correct proletarian slogan, by which he meant... Is he put it better? Actually, another expression I think he said: um, uh, "War on the palaces, peace for the cottages." Meaning that if we're to stop this war, we have to overthrow our own ruling classes. The people, of the cottages, need to gang together to fight the people in the palaces because there's the people in the palaces who are actually responsible for the war, uh, and they had to they could not be appealed to because their own interests were at stake. For each of these ruling classes, for each of these uh, palaces. In fact, it was, you know, a fight to win or die against their own rivals. So the working class had to pose an internationalist alternative, saying that the workers had no country, they had no stake in this war. And that's what the Bolsheviks stood for. And that's what two or three other parties stood for. They got together during the First World War, along with some other kind of more pacifist elements of the workers' movement, and they started saying, you know, down with the war, and the Bolsheviks then actually had to withstand tremendous pressure and repression because, of course, if you stood up inside Russia and said you were against the war, you'd be thrown into exile in Siberia, locked up, killed, or whatever. So in exile, they had to begin to organise their ranks uh, and help to cohere the opposition within Russia amongst the workers who fairly quickly, in fact, began to turn against the war, the combination of hardship on the home fronts, the rationing, the starvation, and, and the military devastation, the, the loss of lives caused by the generals throwing their you know, ill-shod, ill-equipped, you know, peasant soldiers against lines of German machine gun fire. Uh, and the there began to grow a growing sentiment, not just in Russia, but in every country, uh, against the war. And the Bolsheviks who'd stood firm right since 1914 against the war were in an ideal position actually to start, uh, to show an alternative to cohere workers who were, who had turned against the war, even if in some cases they'd been for the war in the first place. Mm. And so the, what the Bolsheviks did was to bring together those militant workers in initially in the tens of thousands and then in the hundreds of thousands, uh, on a firm basis, an anti-war basis on a, a basis of fighting for the interests of the working class to end the war, to fight their own ruling class, and they in turn were able to win millions of workers and peasants behind what they are arguing for.
0: And if you'd gone to a bookmaker in 1914 (laughs) and tried to place a bet on the country most likely to have a revolutionary um, upheaval that would actually end in workers' power, you'd you'd get pretty long odds on Russia and so I guess then the question <laughs> becomes around the Bolshevik Party and it's one of the themes of the book, I think, um, and the themes of many books in our tradition, including I was thinking about how this book compares to um, revolutionary rehearsals that's edit, uh, edited by Colin Barker. that came out in 1989, I think, um, initially. That goes through a series of examples of revolutions in the 20th century and you really have the sense that I know that you do at the end of this book as well, that the creation of a revolutionary party is really essential in having any hope of um, withstanding counter-revolution and taking a revolution in one place um, and turning it into an international revolution. So what was it about the Bolsheviks um, that you kind of keep coming back to in this book that um, made them the kind of party that could lead this revolution in Russia in the most unlikely kind of circumstances.
1: Yeah, I'm you're absolutely right. I, I think that um, it was a, a long shot for there to be a revolution in Russia, given it was... An, such an economically backward country, the working class was a small minority, uh, they, um, the peasantry were by far the majority of the, of the population, uh, and it seemed in 1914 that uh, there was, you know, tremendous block of support for the uh, the Zara system and so forth. And yet three years later, of course, they have two revolutions, not one, but two revolutions in the course of a year. So the Bolsheviks were able to lead the second of those revolutions, the October Revolution, because... Essentially, during the course of the war, the, the working class the peasantry got increasingly sick of the war and turned against it. And they initially brought down the czarist regime that had been in power for 300 years and put in its place uh, a, a new government, called a provisional government, which is to basically hold power until a new constitution could be drafted, a new parliament be elected and so forth. And initially, the provisional government gets the support of the majority of the working class and the middle class and so forth. And the Bolsheviks say, "Uh uh-uh, don't trust these people. They're just the capitalists wearing different hats. These people are much the same people as were the kind of mealy-mouthed kind of... You know, bourgeois forces of 1915 and 1916. They haven't changed their spots much. They might put a little red rosette in the lapel now to demonstrate their support for the February Revolution, which overthrew the Tsar, but they're not going to give the working class anything. Now, to begin with, that was not a popular position. But the Bolsheviks had to basically hold firm to their principles, as in fact they'd done when they were very unpopular in 1914 as well. Uh, so they had a tradition of doing that. And they'd said, they'd argued right at the outset. You know, after a little bit of hesitancy, to begin, in fact, at the beginning of the war, by April, that is two months after the February Revolution, Lenin had organized the Bolsheviks to take a firm position to say that the provisional government could not be trusted. It would not deliver the basic things the workers and peasants wanted, that is bread for the workers, peace for the soldiers, and land for the peasants. The reason why the provisional government, the standing government, could not do those things was it was represented the very classes whose interests were threatened by those demands. Uh, by the the generals, by the landlords, by the business people, the industrialists and the bankers and so forth. The government was not going to turn against its social base. It was not going to bring about land for the peasants. It was not going to withdraw from the war. Because withdrawing from the war meant a disgrace to the Russian Empire. These people were dedicated to the Russian Empire. And so the Bolsheviks basically had to argue, to begin with, only a small minority, even amongst the more advanced workers who were involved in electing Soviets, workers' councils, which took power, well, which uh, formed one of the two powers in the course of 1917. The uh, Bolsheviks had only a minority of delegates in the workers' council. But as the experience of going through month after month of the provisional government being in power, failing to deliver for the people, failing to deliver to the workers and peasants, in fact, at one point, virtually opening the door to a military coup against themselves, it was the Bolsheviks that both had the politics to explain what was going on. And which began to organize behind themselves or within themselves the more advanced more determined workers who would lead their fellow workers to struggle against the provisional governments to fight for the demands that motivated the February revolution in the first place peace bread and land and by october they'd actually won the majority of workers behind them reflected in elections for for the Soviets the workers councils and in the course of October 1917, Uh, the militias uh, under the control of the workers' councils, dominated now by the Bolsheviks, uh, seized power, uh, and a revolution was then confirmed the following day by a meeting of the uh, National Congress of Soviets. And so what that did was throw everything up in the air. It meant that capitalism was fundamentally challenged. It meant the capitalist state had been overthrown. There was a new possibility of socialism through workers' democracy, workers' councils, elected by uh, factory councils and workers, uh, where it wasn't a case if you have these up politicians and you have the constituents who they basically ignore for three years or four years until they face election again where the workers' councils were the people who were governing, the workers' councils were the people who were doing things, they're running society, they're overseeing production, they're ensuring public safety, they're ensuring the provision of education and healthcare, they're ensuring the rights of uh, women to participate in in political life, they're ensuring that Jews were not being attacked by forming workers' guards to uh, fight the anti-Semitic gangs who had traditionally been attacking the Jews. Uh, They fought for the rights of national minorities against Russian chauvinism and so forth. And so the Bolsheviks did all these things, A, because they had a political principle that enabled them to stand up for things when their position was correct but unpopular, and B, because they were dedicated to the struggle. They weren't just armchair revolutionaries. They threw themselves into the struggle and won the respect of their fellow workers uh, by, for example, organising against the attempted uh, military coup, uh, by organising against uh, anti-Semitic pogroms, By organising for the provision of food for the workers, all these kinds of things.
0: Mm. And I mean, there's a a hundred stories in there that we could pick apart. But I'd recommend if people from that description want to read more or or listen to more about the Russian Revolution and the series of events that took place in that period, um, we have a episode, um, the true story of the Russian Revolution. By, uh, by Omar Hassan on this podcast, and then there are some other books that I'll put in the notes as well that you can follow up to learn more about this period. And I guess then um, the next stage after that comes when you know, a massive counter-revolution takes place, um, you know, imperialist powers invaded Russia, tried to crush this. Um, what they could see uh, as an example of genuine workers' power that obviously was uh, antithesis of capitalism. And so this question of whether the revolution could cross national borders, could become an international revolution, became the biggest um, challenge. And I I guess then we have this um, the formation of the Comintern, which I wanted to come to because you write a bit about this, as an attempt to bring together the socialist parties that did have an internationalist agenda, at least to begin with. Can you talk a bit about the foundation of the Comintern in, in 1919 and how important this body became?
1: Sure, yeah, the Comintern or the Communist International, to give it its full name, was a new international uh, founded, as you say, Ros, uh, in March 1919. It's an attempt to bring together socialist parties uh, who had uh, maintained an internationalist agenda in the latter stages of the war, or whose leaders now said that they had an internationalist agenda, even if in some cases they have been for the war in 1914. And so the Communist Party in Russia, of course, now holds state power. In Western Europe, of course, they're in power nowhere. And in some cases, they don't even exist as parties. And so the very first step that has to happen is for Russia uh, to encourage the formation of communist parties uh, by whatever means they could. Uh, and so one way of doing that essentially is by forming a new communist international to encourage the formation of these parties and to set them on the right uh, path in their early stages. Because, because as we established in 1914, so few of the established workers' parties had come out against the war. So what the communist international is about doing is setting up parties in opposition to those social democratic parties that say these people have betrayed the cause of international socialism. We need to return to the traditions of Marx and Engels in 1848 and 1871. Uh, and we need to re-establish that tradition of the working class movement. So this is a combination of an uh, organisational, just to get these organizations off the ground. But most importantly, of course, is grounded on the right politics. And so the, as the initial manifesto uh, in 1919 puts it, They say, and I just quote briefly, they say, our task is to generalise the revolutionary experience of the working class, to cleanse the movement of a disintegrating admixture of opportunism, by which they mean reformism, and social patriotism, to mobilise the forces of all genuine revolutionary parties of the world working class, and thereby facilitate hasten the victory of the communist revolution throughout the world. So they wanted to build up communist parties in every country Within the broad parameters of the communist international, which would guide the communist parties uh, of every country as part of an international struggle against uh, international capitalism. Uh, both because, of course, they needed to uh, encourage revolutionary movements in their own countries. And as I said right at the outset, after the First World War, there were revolutionary movements in country after country in Europe and elsewhere, but also for the sake of rescuing the Russian Revolution from the, the degeneration that would begin to unfold unless it received international support. And so what we see with the Communist International in its first few Congresses, 1919 to 1923, is that... The communist movement is faced with the fact that they've now got this big opposition, that is a reformist uh, international, the Labour parties, who are determined to do the bidding of big business, but which in many countries still hold the majority of the working class behind them. And so the communist parties have to break the working class from their loyalty to these traditional workers' parties, the reformist parties, which even though they had disgraced socialism in 1914 by backing the war effort, actually... In 1918 and 1919, as the workers begin to rise up, the first party they join in many cases is actually the Labour parties, because they're the parties they know about. And so the revolutionary parties have to form initially as small minorities to win workers away from their loyalty to the Labour party and to uh, revolutionary socialism or communism. And so they have to go through a series of, of tasks with these new communist parties. Some of them basically wanted to um, essentially renounce any contact with workers who look towards reformist parties and just reject them altogether, reject parliament, reject the unions, they're all bureaucratic, they've all sold out, Uh, we need to create something completely new and pure that has no point of connection with working-class life at all, because it's all treachery and all betrayal, which meant essentially they they could get bypassed uh, and ignored. Uh, And then there are other elements within a new communist international that, that... whether through cynical reasons or because they really had changed their attitudes, leaders of parties, sometimes breakaway parties, sometimes established parties, they suddenly kind of, if you like, were kind of born again and said, Oh, yes, we're for Moscow, we're for the Russian Revolution, we're for new international socialism. But actually, these parties had in their ranks a whole bunch of complete sellouts and, and traitors from 1914 who'd never changed their attitudes. They'd simply basically put on a red shirt and said there were no revolutionary socialists. So the Comintern, Communist International led in and his comrades in Moscow, primarily because they'd gone through the experience of building a revolutionary party and having a revolution and therefore had incredible legitimacy and credibility as a result of that. They had to, if you like, sort out the uh, you know the sheep from the goats uh, to sift out these new elements that were drawing towards communism to say, look, these people uh, can genuinely build parties. And in order to do that, they have to shake off all these, if you like, opportunist elements, the people who just, like I said, put on a red shirt and said, Oh, yes, we're all communists now. But actually, they still hold much the same attitudes as they had before, they still held much the same politics as they had before. They still uh, were incapable of leading any revolution, as they proved in several cases after World War I. Hmm. And so the Communist International had to build these new communist parties uh, and steer a path for them through, if you like, uh, avoiding the kind of ultra leftism that is simply ignoring everything to do with the Social Democrats, ignoring any worker who might want to vote for a Labour Party, that problem on one hand, and the problem on the other hand, for these leaders of uh, these centrist parties, to use the phrase, who said they stood for revolution, but actually were really where the chips were down, actually were for, for reform. Then you had other people again who simply said, 1914 shows we can do away with parties. We only need strong unions. What we need is revolutionary unions. These people were called syndicalists. And so the Communist International, its early stages is really one of trying to establish a number one, get the Communist Party off the ground in the first place. And number two, how to steer a path between all these, if you like, uh, uh, errors uh, in the workers movement to try and point the right way forward, while at the same time also pointing a path, for for example, for uh, the fight for women's liberation. Uh, The Communist International, compared to the previous Second International, which is the Labour Party of the world, who had been shown in 1914 to be utterly nationalistic, patriotic, who didn't really give too hoots-much about the struggle in the colonies, the Communist International distinguished itself because it was for workers' power in the advanced Western countries, but also supported the national liberation struggles in the colonies. It it supported the struggle of the national minorities in countries like Russia. Uh, It supported the struggle for women's rights. It supported the struggle for peasants, for land. And so 1919, 1920, 21, 22, 23, the first four congresses of the Communist International are about Going back to the kind of socialist traditions uh, laid out by Marx and Engels and by Lenin in 1914 and and the Bolsheviks of the course of the First World War, and to fight for the revival of such a tradition in the workers' movement, uh, and to build mass communist parties. And within four years, they've been very successful Mm. uh, in a string of countries. Uh, And actually, the communist parties by 1923 in Germany were in fact in a position they could have led a revolution.
0: And, uh, you know, as with all of these things, there's so much more to read about about the Communist International in this period. In fact, um, there's been not that long ago a publication of a heap of basically all the minutes of these meetings, and Trotsky called it a school of revolutionary strategy in these first four congresses. So there's plenty to learn from that, and you uh, summarise a bunch of it in this book.
1: The of the revolution
0: of then we get to um, 1929 and Stalin has really consolidated power in Russia. Like the revolution has been defeated, we would argue, it, by this point. Um, so then the question of workers' power and I guess what happens in the common turn becomes even more kind of distorted or becomes distorted in the first place. Um, And so the limitations of revolutionary struggle, uh, revolutionary socialism, I should say, um, to uh, be the dominant um, politics of these socialist, of these communist parties internationally um, is a huge challenge. But you go on then to talk about struggles in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. How do you explain all of that in that kind of context?
1: Well, I think the reason why workers struggle, and, I, and you're right, I go through a whole series of examples of uh, the Spanish Revolution, uh, the mass strikes in France in 1936. Uh, talk about the mass struggles, the sit-down strikes, that is factory occupations by American workers. We now think about American workers being, you know, tremendously conservative and so forth. And yet in 1936, uh, the American working class Uh, You know, rose up in mass strikes and formed brand new unions, uh, organized African-Americans. And, uh, you know, it was organizing a tremendously uh, powerful and important movement. Uh, The Australian communists even, uh, we normally kind of tend to maybe... Uh, downplay uh, the impact of uh, the working class struggle in Australia since it is, for most of the 20th century, obviously in the scheme of things, a fairly marginal country. And yet, the Australian working class movement has its own struggles uh, and its own, you know, political battles within its own ranks uh, during the Great Depression of against eviction uh, for the rights of workers who are unemployed. Uh, then, uh, at the end of the Great Depression, as workers begin to get their jobs back, uh, they begin to fight in the coal mines for their rights to organize, uh, you know, militant trade unions for the first time for ten or 20 years. And so there's a whole series of struggles. And so in the 50s, of course, uh, 40s and 50s, you have the the struggles of the resistance movements against Nazi occupation in the Second World War, uh, and then uh, the Chinese Revolution of 1949, which is a, a specific case in its own right. where I have a, a, a chapter on that. So it's the conditions of capitalism, of imperialism, of Great Depression, of economic crisis, and particularly in the 30s, of course, the rise of fascism, which sends alarm bells across the whole of Europe amongst the working class. If the German working class can go down to defeat at the hands of Hitler... Who then is safe? And so this has a tremendously radicalizing impact on workers around Europe. And then you see the Second World War, uh, which uh, in the case of countries occupied by the Germans or Italians, you see resistance movements blow up. And so there's a whole series of factors then that encourage um, workers to fight for their rights. The problem, though, as you um, spoke about, is that the leaderships of many of these movements were now in the hands of the communist parties. Uh, They had succeeded in the 1920s, uh, building uh, communist parties, in some cases in, in, uh, in the hundreds or the low thousands, in other cases in the hundreds of thousands. And yet these communist parties are misnomers. They're not really communist parties. In fact, all they are is as a result of the Stalinist revolution inside Russia, Uh, they get converted from being what the communist parties were in the early days of the communist international, which is organizations dedicated to fight for workers' power, to fight for revolutionary socialism, as a result of the degeneration of the Russian Revolution and the rise of Stalin and the state bureaucracy to become a new ruling class inside Russia, they then in turn convert the communist international into an organization essentially no more than an extension of Russian foreign policy. And that means the communist parties then essentially follow the orders of Moscow, not to what will advance the working class struggle, but actually to whatever Russia wants for its own state power interests. And in the 1930s, in the course of the struggle against fascism, what Russia wanted was an alliance with Britain and France and Britain and France and its allies, like the British Empire, the French Empire, the United States and so forth. And so in the interests of Russian foreign policy and its alliance with Britain, France, United States and whatever, the communist parties of these countries essentially were told to suppress the struggle, that the tremendous movements uh, against fascism, against war, against German occupation, they essentially were sold short because revolution in countries like Italy and Greece in the, in the Second World War, uh, like in the United States in the mid 1930s, like in France in 1936, like in Spain in 1936, revolution was not in the interest of Stalin. He wanted social peace in those countries. And so the communists were had to face both ways at once. On the one hand, in these countries, they had to reflect the, the struggles of the workers, because the workers, after all, wouldn't look to the Communist Party as they said nothing. They had to talk about 1917, fly the red flag, talk about the great Vladimir Lenin, talk about why we need socialism, and so forth. And yet, they let those workers who looked to the Communist Party, the cream of the working class, the people who were disgusted by the Labour parties, who really wanted socialism... They took those people and essentially made them servants of Russian foreign policy, of Stalin. Stalin said, no revolution in your country, no revolution in your country, no revolution in your country. And so these people, in turn, led the people behind them, the workers and peasants who looked at the communist members of the, of the various parties, and actually sabotage the struggle for socialism in those countries. So that, made, for example, in Greece at the end of the Second World War, uh, after the Germans had fled basically to go back to defend the homeland, the Greek Communist Party actually had the country of Greece in the palm of its hands. It could have taken power. It could have had workers' councils. The peasants could have seized the land. And yet Stalin did not want the Greek Communist Party to do that because he struck a deal with Britain to give Britain control of Greece after World War II. And that made the Greek Communist Party by far the biggest party in Greece, which had the, the resistance movement that fought the Germans to a standstill, and the Italians to a standstill, who could have marched into Athens and seized power. Actually, they were told not to do that. They, in fact, were told to uh, put out the red carpet for the British. The British, of course, responded saying, thank you very much, and then slaughtered them. And so that is the most dramatic case, if you like, of look uh, at the, the kind of situation where Stalinism actually led to a dead end for revolutionary movements because the Common Party had by now become an agency of counter-revolution, not an agency of revolution.
0: Yeah, and that is an incredible example. Um, and again, read more in the book. Uh, so, a couple of final questions. One is on. Um, I mean, you're making some big arguments across this whole text and you know, the the argument around what is workers' power, the need for a revolutionary workers' party, um and in some ways, um the illustrations that you give of the kind of transformative potential of revolution are um don't feel like that's your main argument, but I think in many ways like this can be the thing that inspires people around um you know, uh, a commitment to revolutionary socialism and that idea that the way that we might feel about things now um, and that heaps of people feel about the world now can rapidly change just through taking part in these amazing um, moments of history that you describe in the book. So do you have a story that kind of illustrates that side of this picture?
1: Yeah, I think that I agree with you, Ross. I think it's tremendously important. The the sense of power, you know, bloody capitalists talk about empowerment now, how we have to have <laughs> empowered workers. What the crap that is. Yeah. Actually, when you look at workers' power, I think in some ways the Spanish Revolution of 1936, I, I mentioned Greece before, but uh, I mean, Greece was tremendous in 1944, uh, what the workers were capable of there. But Spain, I think, is perhaps better known. In Spain, uh, what happened was there had been an elected uh, kind of liberal government, smaller liberal government. Uh, In July 1936, uh, the fascists and the military had risen up against it and tried to crush it. And the working class rose up essentially against the the, the generals and against the fascists uh, and uh, pushed them back. Uh, They basically raided the barracks. They seized the guns. Uh, and they fought off the workers. And so within about three or four days, Spain was divided into two, between the, the, the half of the country was in the hands of the workers and the peasants' councils, and the other half it was in the hands of the, the military, the generals, the fascists, and so forth. And the transformation of life in the half that is controlled by the workers is astonishing. For about six, six to nine months, you see, Barcelona is the classic case. Barcelona is the most industrial city in Spain. Half the uh, blue collar you know, manufacturing workforce uh, work and live in Barcelona in the northeast of the country, or Catalonia, in fact, strictly speaking. Uh, and they take over the workplace. Everything is run by workers control. Everything from the tramways, the railways, the waterfront, right the way down to uh, the shoe shiners, the barbers, the hairdressers, the food supplies, the restaurants, everything is hands of, of, of the workers uh, and um, uh, they fly the workers flags, so anarchist flags socialist flags uh, and the bourgeois they have to basically run for their lives. Um, in some cases they do flee obviously as much as possible they try and either go overseas or go to the, uh, to the regions of Spain controlled by the army uh, but in other cases they just basically have to go undercover and so you see these kind of reports by um, people sort of saying where are the rich? You look around Barcelona the rich seem to have disappeared. And then, you know, these accounts by um, people that say, oh, yeah, look, I recognize him and I recognize him. So the rich are now going about in kind of uh, tatty clothes, workers' caps, uh, you know, uh, tailoresses' dresses, shoddy shoes, the kind of way the workers dress, uh, not wearing fine hats, going bareheaded, which, of course, in Spain in 1936 was, you know, disgraceful for the bourgeoisie, not for, for women, not to wear hats. Uh, and they had to basically try and disguise themselves as workers because they were so frightened of the workers' power because the workers held everything in their hands. They could do nothing unless the workers gave them permits to do it. Um, And the... um, the bosses, in some cases, they the workers had established the workers' councils. They took over the workers' council. They sacked the boss. And then in some cases, they elected the boss to become like the, the production overseer because they might have had some technical you know, capacity or whatever. But the boss essentially was a servant of the workers' council. Uh, and the workers' you know, boss might have to appear before the workers' council. And the workers' council would tell, OK, this former boss, I should say, OK, this is what your pay is going to be. This is what we want you to do. This is this. This is that. This is the other. The situation was that the you know, there was tremendous sexual oppression in Spain, obviously in guess, a, a society de- deeply uh, riddled with uh, a Roman ca- Catholic hierarchy, the priests, the bishops, and the rest of it. Women were supposed to be subservient. And now women were saying we could walk the streets perfectly safely. We were regarded as equals of men. Uh, women organisers said we could go to the villages perfectly safely without fear of attack. In fact, we could even sleep in beds with male comrades we wouldn't be molested. Such was the respect that women had because women and men uh, we're fighting for the same thing: that the male, the male sex pigs who, you know, had been sexist pigs until, you know, the few days beforehand, could understand the fact that women were their comrades in struggle and respected them, saw them as equals. And the women felt the power of uh, being able to address crowds for the first time, being able to stand up in public and have their say and be allowed to do so and respected for doing so. And so you see the total transformation of sexual relations in, in Spain. You see the education system being run by the priests for decades, centuries. Uh, now there's workers' education. There's egalitarian education. You know, the peasants who've never had a decent education now are able to, you know, take reading lessons and learn how to write. Uh, and, you know, the whole country seems to be in a period of, you know, total social transformation as the people get a taste of what workers' power means. It means we control the country. The people who used to boss us around. We're going to tell them what to do now. and they are going to obey our orders or they can get the fuck out of here? Uh, and... This is a you know a tremendous period of social experimentation mm-hmm. uh, of uh, you know workers running things far more efficiently than they did when their bosses ran things because the workers actually really knew how to do things uh, unlike the accountants and the foreman or whatever. Um, so, um, this is, uh, you know, Spain in 1936 is a, a real object lesson of what workers' power looks like, the tremendous uh, capacity that workers have to run their own workplaces and to take in hand all the social social and civic functions, public safety, education, healthcare, mm. transport, all the rest of it. And incredibly rapidly as well,
0: I think, it's the other thing. Yeah,
1: within Period, days. You know.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so final question, why should people – read your book tom
1: <laughs> well obviously i hope you know anyone to read i've, I've sent this book to all sorts of who i know like my uncle he asked for a copy of the book i said he, he, i'm not going to convert him to a revolutionary socialist but i hope people like him can enjoy the read to get a perspective on 20th century history uh that uh, maybe they won't read elsewhere but obviously the main reason for writing it why we want people to read it, is is to understand history but in particular to be convinced of what we're trying to argue in this book which is that number one capitalism stinks Number two, the working class has got an alternative. Number three, workers won't come to power unless they're organised through revolutionary parties, that uh, workers will always fight. We know that. It's just uh, you can say the workers will fight as much as you can say the tides will rise and fall. The issue, though, is whether or not the workers are equipped with a party, an organisation of their own, which can fight for workers' power against the reformists the people who think we should tinker with the system, uh, but which instead argues to fight for workers' power and revolution. So we want people to read the book and be convinced of that lesson, to say that if you've got a beating heart and you think the, work stinks, the world stinks in the way it's organised by the capitalists at the moment, you need to do something about it. You need to join a revolutionary organisation. We'd argue, obviously, you need to join Socialist Alternative uh, because that's what our project is, essentially, to build a party of the type of Lenin and Bolsheviks had done 100 years ago. Uh, so um, we want people to read it because we think it's a fascinating read it's uh, uh, you know occupied our lives for several years uh, and you know you can't help read it but be but by but be inspired by the stories that are contained within its two covers but we also want people to read it because we think it's so important to organize now in Australia in 2021 to fight for socialism because that's the only real Purpose ultimately of this book. We didn't write it just to put down some interesting words and anecdotes and, uh, and experiences. We wrote it because we think that when you look around the world, when you look at uh, the options we, we have in front of us here in Australia, the Labor Party, the, the Liberal Party—what a punch! You know, no-hopers and right-wingers and servants of the rich—and uh, we need to organise against them. Uh, and the whole point is that we're not starting this whole question from scratch. We're looking at 100 years, 150 years, now getting over 200 years, in fact, now, workers' struggle. Um, We didn't land, you know, we weren't born yesterday. We have a whole movement to learn from. And the point of this book really is to try and convey some of the lessons we've learned from that movement of workers' struggle going back to the 1840s uh, to actually work out what will work and what won't work uh, and why we need to be organized on the basis of what will work rather than be organized on the basis of what won't work, alternative to basically uh, sit back and let the people who want to sell out these struggles do so time and again. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, Tom, Liam, are you excited to read it?
1: Absolutely. I've already paid for a copy. I'm just waiting
0: for it to arrive. Yeah so you can order on red flag books and thanks so much tom tom is going to be um launching the book in melbourne for anyone listening in melbourne with mick armstrong the co-author on 15th of on the 15th of july it's a thursday evening and i'll post the details of how to get a ticket to the book launch and come along you can meet tom get a signed edition of the book and uh hear some more stories from within its pages and we really appreciate you um being on the
1: podcast with us Thank you for having me, Ros and Liam.
0: And you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.